Joseph, speak into the mic. I am not your dancing monkey. <laughs> Come a little closer. Now speak into the mic. I am your dancing monkey. I moved exactly. Wait, which so. one sounded better, Toph? Uh, second. I agree. Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Protagonist. I'm Joseph Dorowski, here with Todd Mack. Each week, we look at a great character and a great story. Today, we're talking about Liam from Mouse Guard, Fall 1152, a comic written and drawn by David Peterson. And I suppose now is a good time to announce that we have a guest with us on this week's podcast, and that guest is David Peterson. So welcome, <laughs> David. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, we're very happy to have you here. Uh, Mouse Guard is, uh, I guess we could call it a series of miniseries. Does that work for you, David? Sure, yeah. Uh, so a series of uh, self-contained stories that are published in issues and then generally collected. And uh, it's won multiple awards. It won two Eisner Awards in 2008, one for Best Series for Kids and another for Best Graphic Album Reprint. Uh, and uh, this is... Uh, it's different from the previous comic book ones we've done, where we've been talking a little bit more about some of the mainstream uh, superhero comic book adventures. This is a a uh, it's a beautifully drawn comic book, but it it focuses on an entirely different world than the superhero genre. Thank goodness. <laughs> I need a break. I need a break after Thanos and the Infinity Gauntlet. Really. <laughs> yeah, that was a that was an interesting discussion. <laughs> um, I guess a, a quick uh, synopsis of this might be that uh, this follows the adventures of a group of mice that are called the Mouse Guard that protect uh, the normal citizens of various mice cities uh, that, that uh, exist scattered throughout a, a region. And they have to deal with the, the predators and uh, issues like, like the fact that winter is hard, <laughs> hard for a mice colony. Uh, and, and the guards are, um, they're not the, the government, but they're in charge of, of kind of protecting uh, the pathways and, uh, and helping the mice with, it, with you know, their day-to-day their -day lives. You know, if the mouse is going out on a, a business, you know, taking, taking grain from one city to another, the mouse guard can can help uh, to protect them from snakes or owls or other, other predators. Is that a good description, David? You're hired. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's it. That's beautifully said. All right. Uh, usually we, we do a quick description of how we came to the work. So I guess real quick, David, how, uh, how did you first envision Mouse Guard? <laughs> do you want to blow the spoiler horn before we move forward yeah i guess we should say from here on out we may go a little more in depth than just a a surface level discussion uh yeah so how did i how did i uh come up with the guard i was i like animal stories um things like wind of the willows and Aesop's fables um animated things like disney's robin hood that sort of thing and had tried in high school to come up with kind of a medieval D&D meets animal stories kind of a comic. Um, didn't get terribly far with it as a concept. Uh, but in college, thought about dusting off the idea again and making it a little bit more epic. The high school version was more like Disney's Robin Hood where the characters were uh, kind of more human size, um, but with animal features. Um, and there were some animals, but not a, not a whole lot. And they were all kind of, there was a, a party of lots of different species. And because I was influenced by Disney's Robin Hood, there was a fox and a bear in that party. <laughs> um, but there was also, there was a possum and there was a duck and, uh, 
and some other things. But it was it was more kind of cartoonish and and in a way silly, uh, not intentionally silly, but just the, the conceit of those creatures getting together was silly. Um, so in college, like I said, wanted to dust off the idea and make it a little bit more believable and interesting, and thought, what if I what if I give every species its own culture and tend to not have them intermix um, just because of predator-prey relationships that, you know, a, a fox would try to eat the duck from the old comic, uh, <laughs> that kind of thing. And I thought, well, if I did that and then gave them each maybe their own languages and their own style of architecture and really kind of like Tolkien this thing out, that would be, that would be colossally fun. Uh, and... I set limits for what would be the largest and the smallest of the creatures that I deal with, and the mice were the smallest. And I started working on their culture first because I thought it, it's going to be hard to keep mouse characters alive in such a big story when they're so small and pretty much everything wants to eat them. Uh, and that just kind of became the story. That that ended up being more interesting. I thought once once you as a reader have found interest with the plight of the mouse, why are you interested in the plight of the fox? Uh, it, it doesn't, it just doesn't resonate as much. Um, or at least that's, that was my thinking at the time. So I just plowed forward with making it, it mouse centric. Yeah. And I guess we, uh, for any listeners who haven't had a chance to look at this, you should look at it. The, the art is beautiful, but it's, it's very interesting because they are anthropomorphized in which these, these are mice that carry swords and things, but it's not like a Disney style, um, uh, you know, changing their features and changing their size. They're still the size of mice and they still, um, uh, have the, the anatomy of a, of a, of a mouse. They just happen to, to walk on hind legs and have uh, cities that they've built and that sort of thing. Yeah. But it's all mouse skill. Yeah. Um, I came to this when I was a grad student at Michigan State University. We were planning a, a comics forum discussion, and we were hoping to get a comics professional in as a keynote speaker. And as we were batting around ideas, someone mentioned that David Peterson was was a Michigander and that we should look at his work. And so uh, I and several others, we, we bought the collections and, and read the first Mouse Guard, and we really, really quite liked the art. And Is, we that, were the real wor- Is that the real word for that, Michigander? Yeah. Yeah. My goodness. <laughs> who knew? I love Michigan. that. <laughs> yes, some people who live in Michigan were aware. <laughs> <laughs> we all got the memo. Yeah. Um, and then we we did have David Peterson as the keynote speaker at one of our very first uh, Michigan State Comics Forums, an event that's still going on uh, there in Michigan. And a little bit after... For that keynote speech, too. It was awful. <laughs> we quite enjoyed it. Uh, <laughs> thanks. I, I didn't... I had no clue what I was doing. I actually had to, like, Google keynote speech. <laughs> what am I supposed to be talking about? I and still... Uh, I vividly remember when you... Oh, sorry. You, you broke down some of the different aspects of comic book art in a really interesting way. With uh, you would highlight, uh, you know, the symbols that would appear above characters' heads when they get hit, and talked about you know what those were. And uh, it was it was interesting to see it broken down by someone who who's you know drawn drawn the uh, the comic book start uh, style art. I'm glad there was something in there that was salvageable. <laughs> um, and a little bit after that event, I actually had the chance to write and encyclopedia article about mouse guard for the what was it called the critical survey of graphic novels and uh david and i exchanged a couple emails when i was working on that and a couple other projects since then so we've kind of occasionally sporadically been in touch 
um, but I've stayed up with the series, which, uh, besides the one we're talking about, it has a couple more mini-series uh, about the mice, and then a, a very fun series called Legends of the... Is it Legends of the Guard? Yeah. Okay. I wanted to make sure I had the, the, the exact title right, in which... Um, you've invited several of your, your friends who work in the comic book industry to tell short stories within the mouse guard world. And those are always fun to see the different artistic styles and, and tones that can come out of those. Yeah. It's a, it's a, it's a beautiful series and I can brag about it because I'm not doing much of the artwork. <laughs> <laughs> you, uh, there's a framing device in each of them, right? Where, yeah, for the legend series, it's, uh, it's set in a mouse tavern where, Mice have been gathered by the the tavern owner, the innkeep there, who um, knows that all these mice owe her money. And instead of just forcing them to pay, she figures, I'll get one good night of stories and entertainment out of this if I make a contest where whoever tells me the best story gets their bar tab just cleared, and then everybody else has to pay. Um, so the people show up because they think there's a chance, the mice show up because they think there's a chance that they're... Uh, their story could win and, and clear their bar tab. Um, and then all those, so I do all the tavern scenes, but as soon as a mouse starts to tell their story to the, to the, uh, the tavern owner, that's where it's one of the guest artists and writers, um, doing, doing their own thing. So it, it makes sense, um, that these stories could be out of context with my, timeline um they don't have to use real events or even real cities they could be just like tall tales um legends myths uh but if somebody wants to to play it really close to the mouse guard world that i've created then it could be a believable just like almost like a war story rather than a a, you know a fishing story right so you you just get a a very fun range um both like i said in tone and also artistic styles because there you you bring in all sorts of fun artists uh, so Todd, how did you uh, you come across Mouse Guard? <laughs> well, as with uh, practically all of the comics that we're reading for our podcast, I um, was unfamiliar with Mouse Guard until you mentioned it. Um, I checked it out at my local library, and I loved it. I thought it was um, beautiful, and um, it reminded me, and I'm sure that you've heard this probably before, of this world of um, Brian. I don't know how to pronounce his last name. Jock or Jockus or uh, something. He always pronounced it Brian Jakes. Jakes? Okay. Um, and uh, I read those novels when I was younger, Redwall. And um, the, it, this, it's a story about animals kind of – and this is not the same thing, but it sort of reminded me of how much I had enjoyed those novels when I was a kid. And um, – I just thought it was beautiful. It's it's simple. It was a really quick read. Um, I actually read it, read through it a couple of times today, just um, flipping through it, and um, it's delightful. All right, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> oh, you're very kind. And the, and the Redwall praise is always, uh, uh, you know, I know that's high praise. Those those books have a, a really loyal. Uh, following where the kids who grew up with them have a very special place in their heart for them. So when yeah, it's mouse guard to that, it's, it's, you know, it, it means something. It just touches, it touches the same, um, some chord, you know, that's like way down deep from those books that I read and, um, sort of reminds me of a, of a place. And it's, I think sort of, um, along what you were saying before about Robin Hood or wind in the willows, it just kind of, you see something like that and it, and it takes you back. And so anyway, that was where I was that in my head space. 
And, well, I guess that that made me think. Um, we probably should say that this is um, an all ages comic book. It's meant to be consumed by readers of any age. And I know that um, my, my daughter, who's six, I read some of it with her today, and she seemed to really enjoy it. And I think it's something that is uh, suitable for all audiences. Yeah, I would say all ages. Sometimes all ages means like little kids and their parents that get dragged into it. <laughs> but but all, all ages in this case really does mean all ages. I I didn't feel like I was being. Um, patronized or you know condescended to at any moment i just felt like uh, c.s lewis once said uh, talking about um children's literature and and kind of bemoaning the the way that some uh children's writers uh kind of talk down to children and um and this just felt like like a great story that really anybody could just read and enjoy so i like that Everyone knows when they're being talked down to, and no one likes being talked down to. So um, the idea of trying to write that way just – it disgusts me. Like I, yeah. I want to do that. So, <laughs> so I just wanted to make a book that uh, – I, I originally just wrote it like the first issue was just – I wasn't thinking of it as even like, oh, this is okay for kids. I was thinking like this is for people my age-ish. Um, and then I realized that just because of kind of naturally who I am as a writer – it was not inappropriate for kids and yeah. uh, and then just kind of kept that up thinking like yeah i mean that's kind of where i fall naturally i might have to do a little bit of fine tuning to make sure i don't go too dark or too light but um yeah don't don't talk down i don't adjust the vocabulary level at all um you know i just make sure it's more the visuals really mm-hmm. well it's sure. it's such a visual it's such a visual work I mean, the dialogues the dialogue is important, but um, you're just sort of I was just overwhelmed by the, just the beauty of the art, like page after page after page, and the and the dialogue is so simple. Yeah, but- well, the first the first book has very Spartan dialogue, and it gets that builds up a little bit as the series goes on. Part of that mm-hmm. uh, was by design, um, so I didn't front load you. So that it really was an immersion for the reader, because it, I mean, even though there's a there's another mouse comic called Mice Templar that ended up being published around the same time as Mouse Guard, but when I was first working on the the, the first issue, um, I did not know that that series was coming out, and so <laughs> to me, like there wasn't really anything in comics that was kind of doing what I was trying to to do and i thought it's going to be hard to get a reader to understand the world of mouse guard like it's you're throwing somebody into the deep end of the pool and i i just wanted to not bog you down and front load you with like history books worth of narration and dialogue and you know let me explain everything about the world of mice uh i just wanted to do it visually so i i I was very sparse with the with the language, but it does pick up as the series goes on and gets it gets a little bit more intense. The other reason that it's sparse is I, in some ways, just didn't know what I was doing. Oscar's <laughs> <laughs> the first comic I had ever done. Well, wow. yeah, it, it, good start, <laughs> a successful start. It seems. Um, I guess this is a good point to, for us to just jump into a deeper discussion. We're going to be focusing on uh, one of the characters named Liam, but there are there's no way we can talk about this without addressing several of the other characters as well. Um, the, the series opens and, and like 
David was just saying, it, you just kind of jump in and you get to go along. It doesn't give you this long prologue that explains, you know, the whole history of everything. Um, you, you do get a, a merchant mouse who's carrying a load of rice kind of saying, I wish, you know, maybe I could have had a mouse uh, guard help protect me as I deliver this from one city to the other, but I'm just going to make it on my own. Uh, and then we, we turn the page and uh, there's mouse guards looking for a missing <laughs> mouse merchant. <laughs> and we're introduced to three of the main mouse guard characters that we see, Liam, Kenzie, and Saxon, who are the ones on uh, on this hunt. And this first issue is largely just their experience as they are looking for uh, that merchant mouse and they encounter a snake along the way. And like we said, these, uh, these are drawn to the regular scale. So the snake becomes a very intimidating enemy for three, three mice to try and battle, even if they are carrying mouse sized swords. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, and we, what was impressive to me, not only were we kind of being just dropped into the deep end of this, this world, and, and it's fairly easy to go along and, and get a sense of what's happening, but we don't really get a, you know, a, a huge introduction to these characters, but you get to know them pretty quickly. Um, what each of their roles are and their personalities. So you have uh, Saxon, who is the hothead uh, and uh, more of the Russian uh, and fight, and Kenzie, who is more of the the thinker, and he's the, he's the leader of the group. He's he's the more experienced mouse guard. And Liam's actually the the rookie, uh, <laughs> that you know the kid in the classic westerns that's you know part of the group. Uh, but he seems to be falling more or less in between where Kenzie and Saxon are. Uh, Kenzie maybe is, is more willing to sit back and think before taking any action. Saxon just rushes in and, and Liam, you know, fall, falls into a happy medium between those. I, at least that was my impression as I was reading through this. That's, that's a, a, again, a, a well done. <laughs> that's well done. Well done. A, a good description. That succinctly says what, who the character is. Sure. Well, and well done by you for getting it out there, because I only got that from your pages. <laughs> I, mean, I know because you've, uh, one, we've talked, but also uh, I know you've read other issues uh, mm-hmm. beyond even what's just in the first six issues that are fall. Um, but when the when the first series came out, uh, there was some fan art that people did, or there were people kind of saying like, oh, I like this about so-and-so. I like this about Kenzie, or I like this about Liam. And they were telling me things that they saw in the character that just weren't where I saw the character at all. I mean, like, <laughs> almost a day kind of stuff. Like, I really like that Liam's a glutton. And I was like, wait, what? <laughs> Did I put that in there? I don't know. And, uh, yeah, so over the series, I think I've I've kind of helped by listening to the fans and, and hearing where maybe they might be confused or I didn't explain something well enough in one of the early issues. I uh, I try to do some course correction and make sure that that's clear right later on. But yeah, I I, I tried to uh, I tried to set up the series where the first couple of pages, like you said, with the grain merchant. He's he's kind of doing this weird narration. It's one of the only times I I have a character doing that, where they're narrating to the reader without that later becoming like a journal. Right. You know, like the, the, it's an actually recorded document. But uh, he's narrating kind of you know where he's coming from and and the, a little bit about the mouse territories and giving you a little bit of a heads up about the guard do. And then the the next page, like you said, are the the three guard mice looking for a missing grain merchant. And uh, I try, I remember thinking like, I'm going to divide this page into panels where Saxon, Kenzie and Liam each get their own panel. And I, 
I try, even if it's not obvious, I try to explain who they are in that first panel. Like, it needs to be explained. So the first panel is Liam, and he's immediately asking a question. Like, he doesn't know the answer, and he's willing to ask the question, Um, which goes into him being new and him being, uh, uh, you know, wanting to know more, not just being happy to be stupid. Uh, you know, like I need to know. Or, or scared to... of showing that he he is ignorant, which some of us are. Like you, right. you, you so, can be sure. uh, intimidating to ask a question. Yeah. So he yes, no problem. Just going like, okay, I need to know. And then Kenzie is the one who's explaining things and has the all the answers. And then Saxon is grumpy about it. He's already complaining that you know what a dumb merchant shouldn't have done this. And he's got his hand on his sword. Yeah, and he and he's got a little bit of a scowl. Yeah, and a, and a swagger. So I tried tried to give them all uh, some of their personality right in that first shot. And, and I think you see that uh, as I'm just flipping through. Almost always, Saxon has his sword out and pointed at something. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Kenzie is is much more thoughtful. He's the one studying, getting down, looking for clues as to what's going on, that sort of thing. And Liam tends to be in the background. Uh, in a lot of these, he's he's definitely following at this point. Yeah, yeah. Or they ask him to do things for them, like go up the tree and <laughs> scout something out, or uh, you know that kind of stuff. And there's uh, they tell him he had, when it's nighttime, like they don't go. Who has first watch? They say Liam, you have first watch. <laughs> Rookie. First thing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and after they see the snake, uh, Liam kind of says, "There's no way <laughs> we could fight that thing," and. Uh, Kenzie is the one who says that, you know, there's a saying for the guard, it matters not what you fight, but what you fight for. And it's interesting, and I think it, it works, how quickly he takes that to heart. Um, so he's kind of given a, a little mini lecture, you know, just almost in, a ma- in the form of a maxim. But then a few pages later, when they encounter the snake one more time, and Liam's actually alone, the other two have jumped down to attack the, the snake eggs to prevent more snakes from coming into the world. Uh, Liam's alone with the full-grown snake, and he kind of remembers... It's not what you fight, but what you fight for, and he just jumps right into the snake's mouth and uh, and stabs it through that. I guess we should say when this is all ages, it's kind of all ages the way Star Wars is all ages in that limbs get cut off, and you might see some. Well, in Star Wars, there's burning corpses on the screen at one point, and it's kind of like, nah, it's an all ages story, but there's <laughs> there's some violence within it. And I love just this this visual of Liam in the snake's mouth with his sword <laughs> pointing out of the, the snake's head. He's won, but he, he wasn't the smoothest victory in history. <laughs> yeah. Well, you actually don't know for a couple pages, you know, because you just see him go in and you see the snake dead, but then you're like, did Liam make it? I don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah the other two have to come and pull him out. Yeah. <laughs> and they cut open the snake, and, and you don't see it, but they just kind of say, we found the missing merchant. <laughs> was... Yeah. <laughs> you know, so it's, it's not gruesome or gory, but you know what's going on. Bastion... Uh, he was working on a comic around the same time. We were kind of showing each other pages and, and inspiring each other, kind of egging each other on to, to do better work and everything. And and uh, he he kept insisting. He's like, you got to show the merchant inside the snake. Like you got to <laughs> you got to angle the panel so that you're looking down into that cut open belly and show them all like you know shriveled and half have digested and i'm like no that's not that's that's a comic you would draw this is a comic i'm drawing i don't do that kind of stuff uh jeremy jeremy bastion his uh his series is cursed pirate girl correct yeah, yeah. yeah. so it's another and series it's amazing where he, work. He, i mean his he can pull some of that off um 
and I've gone a little darker as the series has gone on, and I'm I'm willing to to you know roll the dice on a few of those kind of scenes here and there. But at this point, especially for a first issue, I just thought I'd rather Hitchcock this and have <laughs> them show their expression at finding him and let your mind fill in the gap. Like your mind is going to come up with the the right visual for what is inside the snake's belly, you know, what the merchant actually still looks like and whether that's something horrific or pitiful or whatever. Uh, I'd I'd rather it strike the chord with the emotion you're already feeling than me kind of force something by, by drawing one specific visual. And uh, Liam's face is is perfect for that because he just has these two little dots for his eyes, and he just—I mean—he's—he's he's just been pulled out of a mouse's mouth, so he's already having a rough day. Snake's mouth, yeah. <laughs> or, or yeah, the snake's mouth. <laughs> but he—he he does not look very pleased with what he's seeing right there. His little ears are drooping down. Yeah. <laughs> he's he's got to be a slimy mess too. <laughs> yeah, snake's mouth. Um, and then there's a. Uh, is it here? Oh, maybe it's, it's next time we see him. It's clear. Oh, no, it is on this panel. Sorry. Uh, there's a little bit of respect that's coming towards Liam from the other two, where there's this kind of conversation. Did Rand ever kill a snake? No, but he has saved your life more than once. Kind of saying, you know, there's this other really good <laughs> guard mouse that has never killed a snake. It's kind of impressive yeah. to, to do what Liam just did. But it doesn't... It's not um, like... In some films, when you get this young new character that's being introduced to the world, they almost become like the prodigy or you know the most gifted one immediately, uh, yeah. Yeah, the destined to to be doing that. And you don't get that sense with Liam. Uh, he he's working for this and he's he's trying to digest everything that he's being taught, and he's improving because of that. Uh, yeah, I hope. I mean, I I think uh, like when I originally came up with the the guard mouse characters. Um, the trio that I had was Saxon, Kenzie, and then another mouse called Rand, who has a shield. And the story that I had in mind for them was part of this big epic war with the weasels and everything. And so when I started working on Mouse Guard, I mean, I, I didn't have a contract with Arkea. I was self-publishing an issue for the Motor City Comic Convention. And I had no idea if I was going to even get to do a second issue or, you know, what. And like I said, it was my first comic. I hadn't written and drawn a comic. So I was worried about trying to do, like, issue one of this huge epic war story that I had, you know, kind of envisioned. I thought, like, that's too much. I'm I'm biting off more than I can chew with the first. I should do something that doesn't contradict that story if I ever want to tell it maybe move forward a couple of years. This is like after that war. And, uh, and then I, I had this other mouse character, Liam, that I thought eh, he might be interesting. And because he's new, because he's the rookie, it gives me an opportunity to give the audience information because the other two characters might have to explain it to Liam. Um, if everybody there is a veteran, nobody's ever going to go like, well, you know, we have the saying at Lockhaven, or, <laughs> well, you know, as guard, like, this is kind of our job. Like, yeah, I know, I've been doing this job with you. That's the <laughs> what are you talking about? You know. So by putting Liam in there, I kind of gave him this chance to be, uh, you know, the, the, the explanation uh, uh, excuse. But, uh, uh, so that's why I put him in. And I thought of him as just kind of being like this weird younger brother character, this little tag along kind of thing. But not long after issue one, I started thinking of him almost as that like 
young prodigy chosen one Luke Skywalkery kind of thing. Um, so I'm glad that it didn't read that way. Um, you know, I'm, I'm glad that it looks like he learned along the way and it was a slow build rather than, you know, kind of instantly becoming <laughs> the next great thing. Yeah. You were, you uh, can tell, you can tell the end, by the end, you can see that that's where it's headed by the oh. end of this book. Right. Okay. Where, yeah. um, is it is it uh, Gwen, Gwen, Gwendolyn? Gwendolyn, who is uh, n- giving this narration at the end? Mm-hmm. She says something about man. I've never seen a mouse just learn this quickly. Or I'm not, I'm not making this up, am I? No, <laughs> no, <laughs> no I think. You... Yeah, yeah, but it feels more earned than uh, you know Luke Skywalker waving around a lightsaber once in the Millennium Falcon and then being fairly proficient with it next time we see him using one. Yes. <laughs> Chapter two is called Shadows Within, and here we we actually don't see any of those three mice uh, in this one. We're introduced to uh, Sadie, is uh, a mouse, uh, part of the mouse guard, who has been sent to go and find Conrad, because they haven't heard from Conrad for a while. And this kind of shows a different uh, side of the mouse guard world, whereas the first one was just those three mice out uh, in in the forest. This one time, we I think we see our first mouse dwelling. Mm-hmm. And I need to say, I always appreciate the architecture that we get in your drawings of <laughs> uh, how the mice have, have built their structures. Um, and you, you often build models for these, don't you? For... I do. I didn't for, uh, I don't think I really did for fall, other than at the very end of fall, I built a model of Gwendolyn's office and of um, the gate of and like the portcullis and the, the stone archway of the, the opening where the doors are. But that's um, that's it for fall. Once yeah. I got it, I found how useful they were by the end of fall and was like, why wasn't I doing this all along? <laughs> and then just started building them all throughout winter. And, like, I don't think there was a place I drew in the third book, Black Axe. I don't think there was a place I drew that I didn't have a model. Right. Okay. Well, I guess any excuse to build a portcullis, right? um uh, and this one it you advance the plot i guess it's key at the end of the last one we should say that the the mouse merchant was a a trader it had a uh, map of lock haven hidden within the my uh the grains of of rice that they found and so they know that there's a trader um because no one's supposed to be passing along those kinds of maps and uh as sadie comes out to meet conrad conrad tells her that he knows there's a traitor within the guard and he's, he's heard the traitor's voice. And, uh, there's, there's a sequence that I enjoyed where Conrad's explaining how he discovered this, that he hid in the rafters of his house. Um, once he, he had realized that someone had been in while he was out, uh, to, to find what was going on. And it shows that he tied himself up with a, uh, what looks like an alcohol bottle and just hung out <laughs> until someone came back <laughs> and he's tied himself to the rafters. So he doesn't fall down when he falls asleep. Uh, it's more of a sailor kind of figure, I guess, for the, for the mice. Um, cause he's on a seashore, I guess. And, um, after Conrad shares this information though, they get attacked by, by crabs. Uh, again, just the, what stands out with the, the enemies, uh, the, the predators that we've seen so far is the size, size differential. This is really kind of a, uh, David and Goliath kind of situation that the mice are always finding themselves in, it seems whenever they're in these battles. Yeah. Uh, the, the crab thing, uh, I have to give credit to, to Jeremy Bastion. Um, he actually reminded me of it recently. He was like, you know, I was the one. I'm like, oh, okay. I knew we had <laughs> talked about issue two. Uh, 
it was, it was that first Motor City where I was selling the first issue, and uh, and I didn't really know what to do for the second issue. I was worried about doing, um, kind of advancing the story with the the trader. Uh, grain merchant and and following Saxon and Kenzie and everything and I thought I'm I'm worried to just start going into mouse territory or mouse settlements and and showing lots of architecture and cities and all that I, I I'm I feel like it's too soon what what everybody's responding to with issue one is this Liam versus the snake thing um, so I almost think like for issue two I shouldn't mess with the formula I should kind of do that again if possible. Um, and I don't remember exactly how we got to it, but something about going to the beach or something like using a different kind of landscape than than fall leaves and or you know leaves and trees and stuff. And I think something about the beach came up, and then Jeremy suggested the the crabs. Um, and so yeah, uh, it's it's another one of those like when people tell tell me that they like fall, uh, it either boils down to they liked the Liam battle with with the snake or they like the Conrad Sadie battle with the crabs. That's me. That's me. <laughs> right on. I love this chapter. I love, I love it. it. Thank you. Thank you. Um, the second page when she's in the leaf boat, is that the, that's the picture that your daughter liked? Yeah. When, when I turned that page, she just like, that's awesome. That's exactly <laughs> what I thought. It's just beautiful. But the whole, I just, I really liked it. Like I, 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 I just keep coming back to the word delightful for this whole book. It just is – it's beautiful and simple and um, really well done and and just feels delightful like every turn. <laughs> I'm just like pleasantly surprised. <laughs> so yeah, this chapter – I really like this chapter and her, her running away after Conrad sacrifices himself for her with these kind of tears. tears. Yeah, Goodbye, the- brave friend. It's just uh, – good stuff yeah and it gives a sense of the uh the duty of the guard uh you know it's more important that she escape with this information than that they try and survive and hunker down together in the in the dwelling or anything or protect themselves from the crabs but not get the word out they need to get the word out and conrad sacrifices himself to ensure that that word goes forth and they're also here i think we get a sense of just how kind of capable they are with these little weapons he fights with a, a fishing hook and um she has her sword and there's a part where she dro- does she drop her knife and she catches it with her tail? Anyway, the, I, I, it gives us a good sense of the, the, these mice are small and they're always uh, they're always overmatched, um, but they're really quite capable of um, taking care of themselves. All right. Well, the the third chapter is called Rise of the Axe. And uh, at the beginning, we meet a mouse named Midnight who's carrying a load of swords. Remember him. Just keep him in mind. Uh, he's carrying a lo- load of swords they sang are going to go be sharpened uh, at uh, Blacksmith. And I, I guess this is that mention of the Blacksmith is maybe the first sense of all the different kinds of jobs that mice can have. And this chapter has one of my favorite sequences because the three guard mice that we'd seen at the beginning, uh, they go into the city of Barkstone, I want to say, was the city. Mm-hmm. Okay, right. yeah, Barkstone. And they're trying to find out information about who might be a traitor. They're just trying to listen in uh, to all the conversations, find out if there's someone who has something against the guard mice um, or might be causing trouble. And we get a, a couple silent pages of them just traveling through the city, and you see mice doing all these different jobs. You see a tavern, you see a glass blower, you see one that's doing carving, one that's building some furniture. And uh, for me, it, it, 
kind of gives you the sense that there's a larger world here than what we'd seen in the first two issues. It's kind of more expensive. It's uh, referencing Star Wars again. It feels a little like the Moss Eisley Cantina where you just get a sense that there's a lot more going on than what we'd seen up to that point. Um, you're, you're shown this glimpse of the larger world that's out there. Yeah. Yeah. I wanted to, um, I, I kind of thought about each, each chapter as having like a goal, what, what the goal I wanted to get across to the reader and issue one was just to cement in kind of like what the guard is about. You know, it's a totally an introduction issue. And then, uh, by the end of it, there's a suspicion that maybe something is amiss, that there's maybe a traitor or there's you know something that's weird going on. Chapter two was about confirming something weird going on. And, but now that the reader knows, okay, chapters one and two told me there's, there's you know, something's rotten in the state of Denmark. Uh, I haven't seen Denmark. <laughs> so the third chapter, I wanted to go to a mouse settlement and really like show you what's at stake, that there are kind of common mouse citizens just doing things and living lives. And there's like a city. Um, and that's, that's just one of many cities that are, you know, potentially in danger because of all this. Hey, I was thinking about uh, Redwall again, and just this, this huge world of, and and these these two silent pages kind of reminded me of that, and also um, Avatar: Last Airbender when they um, they spend so much time alone, and then they walk into these big cities, and um, and they're just bustling with life, and it re- and it reminds you like, oh yes, this there is a world, and it's well thought out, and these people are uh, busy, or these mice are these animals are busy doing things, and so that, I felt I felt like it was a good. Uh, a good move at this point. Yeah. And, uh, the, the guard mice find that when they're wearing the cloaks of the guard mice, no one will talk to them. <laughs> they, they're a little <laughs> conspicuous. And, uh, Liam, uh, or Kenzie says we, we need a distraction and Saxon just announces, okay, there's gonna be a duel of guard mice here, uh, <laughs> to draw a crowd. And while the crowd is being drawn and they're fighting, Liam takes off his cloak and kind of sneaks around and he goes to visit the cartographer. And I love the design of the cartographer with his little glasses, <laughs> little spectacles on. Yes. Cause yeah, I guess you have to think about, uh, a mouse can't wear traditional glasses, obviously. So you, you've kind of have to work through how would a mouse, you know, do this thing that they need to do. <laughs> Changes the design elements, uh, I think. Um, and as Liam's there with the cartographer, he kind of says, uh, asking about a map of Lock Haven, and that is almost kind of like the password saying, oh, okay, you're you're one of the, you, you know we're getting that map. Uh, so come suit up, recruit, and he goes upstairs and he sees all these mice putting on black armor, which is always a bad sign. It's, you know, that's, that's a sign of trouble when you see a bunch of guys putting on, you know, these kind of foreboding uniforms all together and, and gathering spears and things. And they think Liam's going to be, uh, or is a new recruit for them. Yeah. And uh, Kenzie and uh, uh, Saxon uh, are, are finishing their duel, and it gets a little more heated than they probably intended. <laughs> <laughs> Some of the uh, the interpersonal uh, tension that's there, even though these are good friends, they don't always agree, and you're seeing that come out here. Uh, but at the end, the, the bad guys come and bind them and throw them out of the city uh, all tied up. Uh, then the next one is where a lot of the intrigue starts to, to really be below. I, I, I think Todd and I have both said simple uh, several times to describe this, but it gets a little complex here, uh, with all the machinations that are going on. Uh, so, so we had Liam was being taken away by, or, or looked like he was joining the, uh, the traders and, 
Oh, suddenly I'm getting their names mixed up, sorry. Uh, Kenzie and Saxon had just been thrown out of the city, tied up. And we find them actually hanging upside down in another mouse mouse home. And there's this older mouse who's there um, who thinks that they've stolen a black axe from his home, which to him, it's not just the axe that they've stolen, it's the symbol of something significant. And they kind of whisper together, you, you get the sense that the black axe is an important uh, kind of almost mythological sized figure uh, within the guard. And uh, through, <laughs> I mean, there's a little fight sequence, uh, but through through a series of uh, conversation slash fights, uh, they, they're able to convince him that, that they're not the thieves, that they need to stop a traitor that's trying to uh, overthrow the, the mouse guard from the, the base in Lock Haven, which is where the, the mouse guard is, is based in, where Gwendolyn, the matriarch of the mouse guard, uh, is at. And the Black Axe agrees uh, to help them convince that they're not the thieves. Um, and, and then we switch back to seeing Liam uh, following along with all these gar- uh, the mice who are now marching onto Lockhaven, uh, planning to overthrow the mouse guard. And he sneaks away at one point, like, okay, I've got to go now. I'm not going to be able to fight all these guys by myself. I'm going to go and uh, sneak off and try and warn Lockhaven. But of course, he's caught in this process and taken to see the leader of the traitors. And we get the classic, uh, the thing that you can do well in comic books, but you can't always do well in other media where, because you're not hearing voices or anything, uh, he recognizes the voice and he says you, but we have no idea what voice he's recognized. Um, <laughs> uh, it's one of those things that sometimes I read on, on in comics and if I stop to think about it, I'm like, how would that play out on television or you know in an animated film or, or something like that? Uh, we will shortly find out that, that Midnight is the, the traitor, uh, the one that we saw carrying all the weapons earlier. Um, but I, this is, uh, for Liam, I think this is kind of interesting. It's it's not as uh, big a moment as fighting the snake by himself, but he kind of took the initiative to sneak off during the... Uh, Liam had said we need a distraction, but he hadn't given instructions to... Or, or sorry, Kenzie had said we need a distraction, but he hadn't given any instructions to Liam as to what he was going to do. And on his own, he went and found everything that they've been hunting for and he marched with them and now he's he's making ready getting ready to make his break and he gets caught and you know he he doesn't always succeed but he's definitely become more of uh an actor uh in in his life rather than just someone who was tagging along with with his mentor yeah absolutely absolutely he's uh i'm looking back i'm kind of surprised i didn't have saxon and kenzie even say like i wonder where liam is (laughs) (laughs) there's a lot going on (laughs) yeah they're focused enough they're just like well i guess he'll survive (laughs) it's not until later they kind of uh, they figure it all out but um but yeah liam liam's kind of taking some initiative here he he, like Mm -hmm. you said he found he found out more about the traitor uh got recruited into this thing, took it upon himself to find his best chance to, uh, to weasel out of it. Didn't really end up weasel out, weaseling out of it. And then in this confrontation with, uh, you know, the big bad guy who, like you said, turns out to be midnight. Um, midnight even gives him a little bit of a chance to like, he's got a, the beak of an ax to Liam's neck and gives him a chance to not die. Like, uh, yeah, it's it's almost like a Vader kind of a you know join me and together we can rule the galaxy as father and son. <laughs> You're making a, a a pact with the devil, but in this case, you know, an axe is to Liam's neck, and when he's asked that, he says no. Like he's willing to to die, to potentially die for that decision, or to be tortured for that decision. Um, so yeah, yeah, he's he's. Growing up, right before our eyes. 
I've been thinking a lot about agency and talking um, with my students a lot about agency, and um, and it's nice to see. I, I'm glad that I'm glad that Kenzie and uh, Kenzie and Saxon didn't say, "Okay, now you go do this thing." Like he just said, "Nope, I'm going to do it," and, and he um, he takes a, a really active role in the story. Um, and it could have been so. I, it was so, so simply, it could have been something else, but it wasn't. And I like that. All right. Yeah, I mean, according to like once I get, once you get into the larger Mouse Guard world, and there's a role playing game, and so there's all kinds of backstory, history kind of stuff that you can you can read between the lines of a lot of this stuff. But you find out that Liam has been with Saxon and Kenzie for uh, almost three years. Mm. Um. So even though he's a novice and he's still asking questions like, well, so what are we doing today? What's going on? Um, he's not like completely inexperienced. He's, I think it's, it's one of those, like you hope that when you're working with people, um, you train them just, you, you train them enough so that you know that you can trust them and then right. you let them do the work that they're going to do instead of micromanaging. And I, I, I guess I kind of always thought that they, you know, if Liam's there and he needs to be asked questions or whatever, they'll, they'll provide that role. But at the same time, they feel somewhat confident and just going, you know what to do. Yeah. You know what to do, Liam. Go do it. <laughs> All right. Uh, the next chapter, chapter five is, um, almost, it, it feels like it's, it's setting the stage for the sixth chapter when the big battle happens. So we see everyone kind of converging on Lockhaven. Uh, we get a big speech from Midnight where he kind of explains that he feels the, the guard mice need to be taking uh, a more uh, controlling role in the lives of all the mice, that they shouldn't just be kind of on the side and call, uh, need it. when they're called on, they'll, they'll do what they're asked to do. He feels like they should be the ones directing what everyone is doing and un- uniting all the cities uh, by force. And he's doing this through this march through the rain uh, and he has Liam tied up and Liam's listening to all of this. Uh, and there's so many fun little sequences, like they use pine cones as rafts to cross. Um, uh, I don't know if it's a river or, I mean, a, a mouse scale, I guess it could be a very large puddle from the rainstorm, <laughs> but the, uh, the use of the pine cones is just one of those fun elements. And, um, Midnight explains that he grabbed the black ax, uh, because he knew about its symbolic power. And there's just, just this wonderful moment where suddenly we're in an illuminated manuscript where he talks about going down to the archives and finding um, some writings about the Black Axe. And instead of the style that we've had throughout all of this, it's, it's um, in the style of, um, you know, the illuminated text that you can find. I loved this. <laughs> I loved it. And, um, and sometimes, I don't know, sometimes when style changes really abruptly in, in like an animated film, um, I'll be like sort of annoyed and I, I was not annoyed. I, I thought it was beautiful. It was just um, uh, long enough to get uh, the to say what it needed to say, and short enough to not be a distraction. It was really well done, and the art's beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I um, I wanted to do well with with this fifth chapter, this fifth fifth issue. Um, I had just been thinking about like early on in the series, what can I do that's cool? What can I do that's different? What would be a neat thing maybe that I've never even seen in a comic before? Uh, what if I, because of you know weather being such a big deal to them, uh, what if I did a whole issue that took place during the rain? Like the whole issue is that way. There's no point where they get out of the rain, really. Um, that would be a cool thing to do. 
and because issue five is the villain issue, um, I thought, oh, that's good. That's symbolic. It's it's raining. It's in fact, it's pouring um, in terms of what's going on with them. Uh, so I thought that'd be good symbolically. But I also realized, like, that's that's a lot of monotony. The color palette is going to be exactly the same all the way through. There's always going to be the tedium of these, you know, water drops um, kind of visually getting in the way. And, and I felt like it could start to feel like static. So if I'm going to tell the legend and the importance of the Black Axe, I could use the stylistic change to be a little bit of a palette cleanser, or a, a, a break. Um, but also if I did it in this style of like illuminated manuscript, like the book of Kells or something, you as the reader would know how important this is because the mice obviously think it's important because they took the time to make an illuminated manuscript about this tale. So it's like giving some intrinsic value and intrinsic weight to a story because you know that the mice value that story. And uh, I think it does that very well. Like it, it's um, like Todd said, it's a perfect change of pace, or, or as you were saying, you know, from the rain. Uh, and when we come out of the illuminated manuscript, we see that uh, the other mice are also uh, not just the traders, but the others, uh, guard mice, are all trying to make their way back to Lockhaven. And when we see Lockhaven, it's another impressive bit of architecture with all the buttresses and uh, just uh, an amazing amount of detail is seen in inside of the city when we get a few of those those views and these, these winding stairways that look like, uh, you know, they're not just winding for the sake of winding. Like it, it, it works structurally, uh, what you're seeing here. Thanks. This is where I wish I had used more models. Some of the shots of the interior of Lockhaven just don't, <laughs> they don't make sense to me. I mean, that stairway, that, that kind of, uh, uh, uh the, the stairway that turns at right angles every so often. That one, I actually found a photo of a, a staircase that I just liked and thought, okay, I'll draw that. But there are some other things that are other rooms, and I'm like, what is that room? That makes no sense. Where does, where does that connect in the larger yeah, architecture? Yeah where, does that, yeah, where does that connect to the larger? Also, what is the purpose of some of these things? Like, some of this just doesn't make sense, but <laughs> oh, well. <laughs> I guess when you're building the actual models, as you've done for some of the later ones, you really think about the purpose of every single room that you're putting in there. And well, not, yeah, some of it's the, the layout. Room and some of it's also the, yeah, how, how it connects to the ceiling or how, why would something have a shingled roof if it's inside already? Things like that. <laughs> but, okay. All right. Uh, and then the sixth chapter is the big battle that all of this has been building towards. We have Sadie back from uh, the crab battle. We have uh, Liam and Saxon and Kellenaw are, are, have made it to Lockhaven. The guard mice know. Kenzie. Kenzie, I am sorry. I am <laughs> starting to conflate some of these names. Uh, and Gwendolyn and the guard mice that are in Lockhaven know an attack is coming. And then, of course, the attack does come. And it, it was impressive that you can have all of that going on, and yet still we describe it as a simple story. Because there's really quite a few threads that are being woven together. Yeah. Uh, but it's not hard to follow um, as, as you come through it. And... In the battle, the the one thing that I really wanted to highlight, which uh, especially with the character that we've been talking about, is not the bees attacking, though that is a lot of fun. <laughs> <laughs> that there's an apiary, uh, and they, they smoke out the bees to go attack the, the traitors that are coming in. It's the moment where, uh, in some of the chaos that happens in the battle, Liam escapes and makes his way to the armory. 
And there's a lot I like about the armory. I like that you see several different distinct weapons, different hilts are going on with the swords. Uh, but he, he frees himself and um, you get you get the sense that this is kind of his moment. This is where he's grown up. Um, and he takes on four of the, of the trainer mice at once and, and he succeeds, uh, in it. Um, and it's something that, again, I think we've, we've earned that throughout the six issues that we've, we've, uh, been in the story, but it is kind of that, that aha moment of him no longer being the rookie, uh, within the guard, uh, the guard mouse organization. Yeah, absolutely. This is, this was his hero moment to shine. Um, I think the, the, the traitor mice underestimated him uh, also. So uh, yeah, it's, it it was nice to give him, to give him this payoff and to give him a moment. Ironically, the, um, the, the original plot for this story, I think I had like the first two pages drawn for the last chapter, which is where uh, uh, Kenzie Saxon and Kalanaugh are, outside of Lock Haven, they can see that Midnight and his army and Liam are outside the gates of Lock Haven and uh, and and they're trying to decide on a, a plan of what to do. So I had a couple pages drawn um, and I ended up going to lunch again with Jeremy Bastion. It was this I was I did fall when I was working a day job uh, at an antique store and it was in the same town where Jeremy was working in an art supply store. So we had lots of opportunities to get together regularly and uh we got together for lunch one day and I said, man, issue six just isn't working. It, this whole thing is falling apart. I think I have too many threads that I'm not going to really be able to tie up. I've, I've just got problems galore, plot problems galore with how to, how to make this all work in the last issue. And one of the, and he asked me to describe it and everything. And one of the, one of the biggest problems that I was having was because I was doing something really foolish which is you have two parties. You've got the, the Midnight's Rebellion group and Liam kind of tagging along as a prisoner. Uh, and then you've got the Saxon Kenzie Kellenaugh group. And my original version, we follow as the reader, the Saxon Kenzie Kellenaugh group. And it was going to be about aftermath kind of things. It was going to be when they sneak through tunnels and we were going to follow all that and have dialogue. And then they get inside of Lockhaven. They think they're going to be going to like the gates to help reinforce the gates and keep the army out. Well, by the time they're inside Lockhaven, the gates were already going to be down. And it was just going to be them kind of slowly going through Lockhaven, seeing all the aftermath of this army just crushing through and jeremy's like why would you do that like that's you have a chance to show the gates of lockhaven coming down show the gates of lockhaven coming down and you know you've invested all this time in liam show liam doing stuff so um following that direction was uh all thanks to a a lunch with jeremy where he he totally put me on the right track narratively uh, one of my reasons for not wanting to do that was I was literally scared of having to to draw an army of mice breaking down the gates. Like, that's a lot of complicated stuff to draw. I don't know that I can. And that's one of the places that I built uh, uh, one of my first mouse guard models was building the gates and the portcullis to make some of that drawing easier. But, um, yeah, if, if it wasn't for that, we wouldn't have that moment with Liam. We wouldn't see him... Uh, uh, kind of free himself from his binds and rub his paws and get back to work. 
And I'm glad we have that moment. So yeah. thank you to Jeremy, <laughs> Jeremy Bastion. Uh, and, and we get more of this battle uh, going on. And the the other key moment that I think we probably need to discuss is uh, we, I think it's in Gwendolyn's, uh, her her office, I guess, uh, from yep. where she leads the guard mice and she sends out her orders and everything. Uh, in that office is where the kind of final confrontation takes place. And we have Midnight and Kelena and Gwendolyn are all there. And I think it's one of the better choreographed bits of action. I mean, I've enjoyed a lot of the action, but this, this fight scene between Midnight and uh, Kelena, in which Midnight is wielding the black axe, and Kelena is is pretty upset about that. Uh, it's it's very well choreographed, and uh, which fight scenes in comic books sometimes they can be you know just delightful to see and, and very easy to follow, and sometimes they can almost become incomprehensible. Uh, but this one's uh, really simple to follow, and it. it the pacing, uh, you get a pacing through the way the panels are laid out that really drives home the action. All right, Todd, is there anything you want to uh, add in here as we're nearing the conclusion? I agree that um, it just it, everything uh, wraps up nicely in this final scene. This battle, this uh, fight at the end is really, really well done, well choreographed. Um, <laughs> love this image of him pinned against the wall with the axe. Yeah, and uh, we we don't see a whole lot of Gwendolyn in this, but there is you you see why she's the leader, I guess, in this moment, <laughs> and that Kelena's about to kill Midnight, and she's like, no, that would make him a martyr. Let's not, <laughs> uh, let's not do that. Um, and she recognizes that uh, while Midnight's methods were were wrong, obviously, that some of his concerns uh, about the way the territories are run were perhaps valid, and they do need better communication and uh, better. Um, cooperation uh between all the cities that the mouse guard tries to serve yeah and i thought the the epilogue i mean move i think we're moving now into the epilogue really does kind of tie everything together and say okay now this is where we've been and then um opens the door for this is where we might be going and uh so i i I really like this this long narration here i mean long like five pages (laughs) uh narration here at the end of this and it left me wanting to go get the next book. Uh, I think my favorite panel in the epilogue is uh, she's talking about uh, Gwendolyn is, is the narrator for this. And, and we see, again, it's more of that um, larger world. So you see things like candles being dipped in wax saying that, you know, people are, the regular citizens are going about their lives. Uh, even though there was this massive uprising, people still need to live their lives and they're doing that. So you see some people harvesting, some people uh, making <laughs> wax candles. But then there's two mice that you see in an alley burying their armor from the uprising. <laughs> the, 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 they were the traitors and they're, they're just burying that. And I thought that was just a nice little moment. Like, what do you do if you are on the wrong side of, of an uprising? Well, you pretend you weren't, I guess, and try and, yeah. try and go on. I like Liam just uh, sewing up his cloak, you know? Yeah. Like, man, we've just been through a lot, and now I'm just, it's time to, you know, sit down and sew up my cloak <laughs> so I can go have another adventure later. It'll be all ready for me when, when I need to leave again. And he's also uh, sharpening a sword. So, I mean, some of those kind of uh, drudgery or, or day-to-day things that you don't think about that would need to be done, uh, even by adventurers and things like Lord of the Rings or... Uh, you know, any of the other ones that we've referenced, you get these little panels that show, you know, they've got to take care of their cloaks. They've got to sharpen their own weapons. All right. Uh, do you have a, a website where they can go to look for more information about your work in MouseGuard? Kind of the hub is MouseGuard.net. Um, although that website is 
really in need of an update there. Uh, and unfortunately, I realized like it would take me a solid week of doing nothing but web work to, to get everything that needs to be updated there. Like the, the list of books is is two books behind and, <laughs> and, and stuff like that. But what's nice about the MouseGuard.net website is it has the contact information for me. It has a link to my blog. It mentions uh, that I'm on Twitter. Uh, so all those kind of places to find me. I do a weekly blog. Um, like I said, you can, you can just go to the MouseGuard.net website and click David's blog to, to find it out. But uh, um, I, I update my blog every Tuesday with process work. Sometimes it's MouseGuard stuff. Sometimes it's other things that I'm working on if I'm doing covers for other companies or side projects or things like that. But I try to show my artistic process and talk a little about my thought behind you know, why I'm creating something, the way I'm creating it, or where the visuals come from, that kind of thing, uh, outside inspirations and influences. Um, so the blog is a good way to keep up with me. Uh, that updates once a week on Tuesdays. I'm on Twitter, at MouseGuard. And, uh, and from time to time, I do online um, coloring demonstrations through Ustream. Uh, but they're never scheduled. It usually is just on a night where I realize uh, either I don't want to be working on what I should be working on or, <laughs> or I just finished a project and I go, it's too late in the night to start a new project, so I'll just do a coloring demo. Um, so they're not really planned or scheduled, but just follow me on Twitter and you'll see from time to time I'll just say, hey, I'm going live in an hour to, to color this thing, come watch. And uh, when I do those, I make myself available to questions. So if anybody has a question about anything, uh, how to break into comics, my thoughts on the stories, um, technically what it is I'm actually working on on the screen, like how are you getting that color to work that way or whatever, I'm, I'm there. I'm trying to make myself accessible to people who maybe can't come out and see me at conventions. And the MouseGuard.net website also has um, my appearances, uh, and I also list them at the end of every blog post. So um, try to make myself available when I'm out at conventions and stuff like that to uh, to talk to people about MouseGuard or about their work or whatever. That wraps up this episode. Thanks for joining us. Remember, you can subscribe to The Protagonist in iTunes, and we'd also encourage you to leave a review there if you like what you hear. Uh, it might not seem like much to you, but it really helps us out. Uh, you can find links to everything we've talked about in this episode along with a list of all our shows at protagonistpodcast.com. If you have any suggestions of things you'd like to hear us talk about or comments about the podcast, you can send us an email at feedback at protagonistpodcast.com or you can find us on Twitter. We're at protagonistpod um, and uh, we're all each individually on Twitter. I'm at Todd K. Mack. He's at Jay Dorowski. Our producer, Andrew, is at Andrew underscore Dorowski. Um, you can check out our Facebook group called Pot- Protagonist Podcast Group. And we just love any comments, uh, corrections, suggestions for characters we can discuss. And thanks again for listening. We'll be back again next week to discuss another great character and a great story. So long. So long. to get out of the door as gracefully as a whale without one fin.